Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from you God this today. Morning, I saw some of your inner club coming out of you during the beats of that song. Some of you kind of got the neck moving and the head moving. I saw, I saw you religious people out there. That's cool. That's cool. Well, listen, hey, today we are in part two of a series that we started last week called You're Not My Boss. Everybody say, You're Not My Boss. Don't look at your neighbor when you say that. This is not a message to spouses, nothing like that. So don't look at your neighbor and say you're not my boss. I do want to say a special welcome to my mother-in-law and father-in-law who are here today with us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my mother-in-law told me if I didn't welcome her and recognize her that I was in big trouble. No, she didn't say that. She, she's an introvert, and now I'm in trouble just for the fact that I said anything. But listen, so we're in this series called You're Not My Boss, and it's a how-to series, okay? This is a how-to series, which is a little bit different from where we've been going this year. But this series is how to say no to the emotions that compete for control. Because how many of you know we got some, some nasty emotions that compete for control in our lives, and they're always battling? And so that's what this series is about. If you missed last week. You can go back. The best way to, to uh, catch up is you can go to our Exchange Church app uh, if you want to download that. If you're a, a Christian and you have Apple, you can download that on, in the App Store. Uh, for those non-Christians, you can download that at wherever y'all, y'all do that. I'm just playing. Come on, lighten up. Lighten up this morning. Uh, I think they call it Google Play or something like that, the App Store for, for non-Christian people. But... Uh, Anyway, so you can download it there, and if you have that app, you can go back and you listen to our sermons because these sermons are kind of sequential. They, they kind of build on top of one another, so you can catch up that way, or you can always go back to Facebook and watch Facebook Live. But I was looking at a survey, and I wanted to bring this to your attention, but have you ever seen surveys like on when you pull up the, your internet browser, sometimes on Facebook, they have surveys all the time. Well, this survey was really interesting. And the question they ask, and you can respond in the comments with your answer, the question was this. What would you do if you knew you could get away with it? What would you do if you knew you could? If you knew there would be no repercussions, if you knew you could get off scot-free, if you knew you were not going to get in trouble, you could get away with it, what would you do if you could do anything and get away with it? The answers, if you've ever seen one of these surveys and begin to read it, the answers are terrifying. (laughs) They are awful. They are awful. You read those answers. It's unbelievable. Forget about the millionaire you think lives next door to you because the answers, when you ask a question like this, you have no clue who that is living next door to you. And so that's going to kind of drive the conversation and the direction of where I want to go for the next few minutes, what I want to talk about. And so we're going, to, we're going to hit there. But I want you to look at somebody this morning, preferably somebody you don't know, that you haven't met. And I want you to look at them, and I want you to ask them the question, what would you do 
If you could do anything and get away, I'm just kidding. Don't ask that question. Some of y'all were starting to sweat. Like, literally, I saw some of you fixing the bell. You're running out this door. But, you know, the thing about it is, is that question makes us nervous because we know that when you take off all the external filters and you take away all the fear and you ask a question like that, our hearts become exposed. Mm-hmm. Shout me down when I'm preaching good. All of a sudden, people discover things about them that they didn't want really anybody else to know. People asking this question discover things that they probably really don't want to know the answers to. And the things that come to your mind are horrible, right? I mean, just now, we're sitting in church. The air conditioner's on. I asked that question, and before you can even think, Man, I'm in church, and the preacher's looking at me. I'm not even going to think about that. Something horrible popped in your mind without you even thinking about it. It just happened. that Like that fast, something just pops in your mind. But we have learned behavior modification. And learning behavior modification means that we can come into an environment like this. We can... We can modify our behavior and we we check our behavior so that we can get jobs we modify our behavior so that we can get dates and so we can get second dates and third dates and maybe that even turns into marriage and even in marriage we're still modifying our behavior a little bit we got this this thing we want to just try to stay on track and we've learned to modify our behavior but we've never been encouraged to monitor our heart we monitor our behavior, but we've never really monitored, monitored our heart. In fact, culture today says this. Hey, follow your heart. That's kind of dangerous. Because if we did, we're not real sure what all's in there, right? And so that's kind of where we're going this morning. Jesus had this to say, and, and this was part of my message last week. But Jesus is talking to the disciples The Pharisees show up, the religious people, and they're trying to trap Jesus with this question about food and about his disciples not washing their hands. The Pharisees are really trying to make a big deal, and and Jesus just squashes that. He's not having it. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17. He's talking to his disciples. He says, don't you see that what goes into the mouth goes into the stomach and out the body? Right? And he obviously had their attention at this moment. Some of the disciples say, yes, Jesus, we see that literally a couple times a day. Peter says, yes, every morning, first thing I do, I see the things go in my mouth, into my stomach, out my body. Jesus is telling them a real thing. But then he goes on, he says this, but, but, but. What comes out of the mouth, he's talking about what comes out of the mouth in those unguarded moments, those unfiltered moments. He says this in verse 18, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And then he goes on and he says this, these are the things that defile them. So he's talking to the, he's, he's addressing the Pharisees and the disciples. The Pharisees are all bent out of shape because the disciples eat and they don't wash their hands all the time, which is really difficult to do. And the Pharisees were like, well, what if they were to get something in their mouth that was forbidden in the written law? And Jesus is going, that's not the big deal. What goes in, it's not the big deal. It's just going to go right through you. The big deal is what comes out of a person's mouth, because what comes out of a person's mouth oftentimes 
puts us at odds with people. Right? Have you ever had one of those open mouth, insert foot moments? Because what we say, what comes out of our mouth, oftentimes puts us at odds with people. And the quickest way to get in at odds with God is to become at odds with the people that God genuinely loves. And so Jesus went on and he said this. It's such a brilliant observation that has taken us hundreds, literally thousands of years to really uh, figure out psychologically. But he says this, for out of the mouth come evil thoughts. So he's kind of equating here the heart with our thoughts. He says, out of the mouth come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These defile a person. He says, it's not what you put in your mouth, it's what comes out of the mouth that hurts people. And and what comes out of the mouth, obviously, is what's in there. And so when it comes out, eventually, it begins to hurt us. It begins to hurt other people. Now, this explains something that maybe all of us has experienced in one way or another. But it explains why you've probably seen somebody or known somebody who's a really nice person. They're just a great person. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they say something or they do something that's totally off the wall. And you're like, what? Have you ever seen that? I, that's unbelievable, right? And, and that happens, and that happens on occasion. And we see those things, and they are completely out of character, right? You know anybody? Have you ever seen those kind of things happen? It's really out of ca- character, especially when you're under pressure, when you're under pressure or something. And, or maybe if you're dating someone. Ooh. You're dating someone, and they're trying to get a second date or a third date. You've been dating for a little while, and you're just convinced this is funny. I, can I tell a story? Is, Ru, is Lena in here? She went back there with the kids. Pastor Ruben and Lena, I'm going to tell a story. They're not in here, so this is totally gossip. Listen, I, when they were in my Bible school years and years ago, they first started dating. And Tishan, you can attest to this. If I lie, if I'm lying, I'm frying, and Tishan's going to come up here and hit me. But when they started dating, if I'm lying, if I'm lying, when they started dating, they were like, uber obsessed with like each other it was like they had to touch all the time we would be eating lunch and their toes would be touching under the table it was a rule they had to touch all the time and they told me one time that they had decided that in their relationship they were never going to fight that was just one of their rules (laughs) they said that that was funny they they honestly and you married couple y'all should really laugh right come on I mean, no matter how awesome of a person you are, there's going to be a time where something comes out that's just out of character. But listen, when you're dating, especially when you're in an early dating relationship, and you think you know someone, and then all of a sudden something comes out that's out of character, we should pay attention to that. We should pay attention to that. When they have a moment and they say something and, or they do something, and, you, and then all of a sudden they look at you and they see your reaction, And then based on your reaction, they go, man, I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Then you just lean up and go, I do. It came from your heart. It came from the heart. And here's another way to, to describe it. I can shake this or I can tip it. 
shaking this and tipping this or breaking this or whatever. I can do whatever I want. That does not determine what comes out of it. See, what is, de- what is determined to come out of it is actually what's already in it. So shaking it has nothing to do with what comes out of it. It's what's already in that comes out of it. And that's the, one of the best ways to describe it. So shaking it and, and tipping it over, that doesn't determine anything. What's already in there determines what comes out of it. And so it is with you. And so it is with me. And so it is with us and people and our relationships. And if you're moving into a very serious or romantic relationship, because, again, we need, we've learned to guard and monitor our behavior, we should also learn to monitor our hearts and pay attention to those things. So the bottom line is this, that we need to pay attention to what Solomon says, okay? Now, a lot of you probably know who King Solomon was. King Solomon was King David's son. Solomon lived uh, many, 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 many years before Jesus showed up. And uh, Solomon was this super wise king. Uh, he had all this wisdom and everything. A lot of things that Solomon said and did were, were documented and they were put into a document that the Jews put into their law and the prophets, into the Jewish scriptures. It became Jewish scriptures or Jew, Jewish Bible text. We adopted it, and it also became a part of our Bible, and it was put into a document that we call Proverbs. It's kind of a wisdom book, and Solomon said a lot of incredible things, a lot of really wise things, but he makes a statement. He says, above all else, above everything else that you've heard me say, he says, guard your heart, and this is in Proverbs 4.23. He says, guard your heart for everything you do flows out of it. Everything you do flows out of the heart. He's saying, everything I've written, all the things that I've already said and done, listen, above all those things, you have to always guard your heart because everything we do, everything you do, the way you treat your spouse, the way you treat your kids, the way you respond to people, the way you respond to the the lady who just cuts you off on the road, everything we do, he says, it flows from a place, It, it doesn't just come from nowhere if it's in there I mean not all of us are like you maybe and and all you know your heart's sweet and attractive and and you know everybody wants some of it but listen some of us we got some kind of icky stuff and he says everything we do flows out of the heart okay we've learned to modify behavior you are modifying your behavior right now you are sitting in rows. You are just sitting there nice and quiet. Some of you even nod your head. Some of you have been daydreaming, haven't heard a word that I've said, except for now, now that you're awake and now I've called attention to it, you're paying attention. But you've sat there and you've learned to modify your behavior, and that's okay and that's great. But Jesus wants to take it to a new level. He wants to take monitoring to a new level. Solomon wants to take monitoring to a new level, and they want us to begin to monitor our hearts. Think about it this way. If it's in there, it's going to come out. Your parents, whatever they carried around in their hearts, eventually, for some people, unfortunately, for some people, fortunately, spilled out onto your kids. 
what is in there, it eventually, you carry it around, and, and it spills out on the people that we're closest to, the people that we love the most, and it is a big deal. So moving on, we're going to talk about guarding our hearts, and guarding our hearts involves cleaning the toxins out as well as keeping the toxins out. Because some of us got some nasty stuff that just rises up occasionally inside of our heart. And so we've got to really monitor that. And one of the ways we monitor it is we have to identify the things that's in our heart. And so this morning I want to identify one thing in particular that I think oftentimes we deal with, especially Christians. And we're just going to pretend for, for the sake of the day that everyone in here is a believer, you know, you, you know who God is in some, some form or fashion. And so a lot of us carry around this one thing, and it's a word that I want to talk about, and it resides inside of us, and it describes us, and it's this, guilt. Okay? Guilt. Guilt is the emotion, and guilt is emotion, right? Because you feel emotion. Guilt is the emotion that is associated with acknowledging we've done something wrong. You do something wrong, you say something wrong, whatever, and all of a sudden you acknowledge the fact that you kind of messed up, and so immediately you take on this emotion. You take on this feeling of guilt, and there's all kinds of guilt out there. There's false guilt, and false guilt is one of those where you do something, it doesn't actually cause damage, or doesn't, it doesn't cause what you think it caused, and all of a sudden you feel guilty, and it's really not as bad as you, and there's that false guilt. I'm not going to talk about that today, but the guilt that we're most associated with and concerned with is guilt because we're actually guilty, Okay? Guilt because we're actually guilty. Now, you don't have to raise your hand right now because everyone should raise their hand if I ask this question. But how many of you are guilty for something, right? We're all guilty for things. We all have things that we've done or, or said. But, but what you did in the past doesn't have to define you. The guilt is real, but it, it's not necessarily something we feel all the time. There's guilt that was so bad that what we did was so bad in this season of our relationship. Or maybe we had a job one time and, and there's something that happened in that job or whatever it might be. And the, the thought of it is terrifying. And it has become this guilt over us. And we've carried this. And every once in a while, we forget about it and it kind of disappears. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it starts looming up and it starts coming up. And we feel guilty. And, and, and all of a sudden, we just feel terrible. And we retreat back to the narrative that we created that allows us to carry that guilt without overwhelming us. Does that make sense? I'm going to say it. Let me say it different. You start to feel guilty about things you did, things you said, people you hurt, and it's eating you up inside. You can't stand it. So what we do is we create a narrative that will help us to live with that guilt without it destroying us. We start to make excuses. We start to say things like, yeah, but man, I was only 20, I was in my 20s when that happened. I mean, shh. Or we say things like, well, that was my first job. I ain't never, you know. Oh, that was an old relationship. That was, you know. And we start to make, 
Yeah, but my, my dad and my grandfather were the same way. Right? And we start to create these narratives so that we can carry that guilt without it overwhelming us. But here's the thing, and here's why we're going to talk about this this morning as uncomfortable as you all are right now. Denying it or excusing it, okay? We're talking about guilt here. Denying it or being defined by it always empowers it. Thank you for that, amen, Ian. Listen, you can deny it all you want. You can make excuses, but when you do, you empower that guilt, and and it begins to throw you off balance, and it throws me off balance, and and it throws us off balance in our relationships, And, and all of a sudden, guilt has become your boss. We just said a while ago, you're not my boss. Guilt, oftentimes, especially as a believer, becomes our boss. And what it does is it creates a debt-debtor relationship. A debt-debtor relationship. A relationship between us, between us and God, between us and other people, between ourselves. And it has this debt-debtor relationship that every single time something goes wrong, we take the blame and we shift it on somebody else. To get the attention off of us. Every single wrong that you've ever committed against another person, there was a sense in which you basically took something from them. Okay? And that's not a fun way to look at it, but I'm just going to paint this picture this morning. You stole something from them. Maybe uh, it could have been their childhood. It could have been their time. It could have been their money. It could have been their reputation. It could have been their self-esteem. But every time you do something wrong to another person, you take something from them. And because you took something from them, whether it's something physical or there's something mental or emotional, there's all kinds of realms we we can delve into today. But when you take something away from them, you hurt people, it creates this disparity within them. And all of a sudden, we have a debt-debtor type of relationship. In fact, we create terminology for that, right? Because when you do something to someone, you hurt someone, we've created terminology to prove that we have a debt-debtor relationship. We say things like this, well, I feel like I owe her an apology, right? I feel like I owe him an apology, okay? I I took something, and now I need to give something back. I need to give an apology back because I I took something. I can't give her back exactly what I took. I can't give her back her time. I can't give her her life back. I can't give her her self-esteem back. I can't give her her husband back, but I, I can't give her her children back. But I feel like I need to do something, and I owe her an apology, right? Or maybe that's not what we say. Maybe we say this, I just don't know how I could ever make it up to them, right? And so we create this, we have this debt-debtor relationship, and it's a lot of times stemmed and sparked by the guilt we feel in our own um, hearts and lives. But here's the trick. What makes it so difficult is we don't experience guilt necessarily as debt. We experience it as weight. Everybody say weight. Weight throws us off balance. For some of us, we've experienced such guilt. And I'm going somewhere. Just hang tight. I've only had nine people walk out on me this morning. Just hang tight. Listen, we've experienced guilt 
And this weight, it begins to weigh on us. And when it does, that weight knocks us off balance. I don't know why this just popped in my head. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. But have y'all ever seen I Love Lucy? Anybody love I Love Lucy? Man, I've watched them all. I do love Lucy. There's one episode where she's trying to be in this musical, and they put this headdress on her. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And it's so heavy. And she's just like, everywhere she goes, she's like, can't walk. And she's tripping all over. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I feel like that's what we look like when we put guilt on us. It becomes a weight, and it knocks us off balance. And we become off balance in everything. You can, you can carry that guilt, which becomes a weight, and it knocks you off balance in your parenting. Maybe you're a permissive parent and you let them get away with everything because something in your past has happened that's made you feel guilty. And so now you carry this weight and it's knocked you off balance in your parenting. Maybe you're a, an aggressive parent. And I mean, you've got all these rules and, and something inside that has happened in your past has knocked you off balance and it's messing with you. And because of that, you're over aggressive. You're, it's, it's, it's messing with your relationships, your ability to forgive, your ability to love, and you're off balance because of this debt, debtor relationship. And this weight throws us off balance, specifically in relationships, specifically in relationships to ourselves, our relationships to other people. And again, there's terminology for this because when we feel off balance and we feel that weight, and I go up to Susan, and I say, Susan, I, I've done this, and I've, I've messed up, and I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And she says, no problem. No problem. I forgive you. I say things like this. Wow. It feels like a weight has been lifted up. Have you ever said that? That's a debt, debt a relationship. Wow. I'm so glad that we got that off of us, you know, and out of our hearts and stuff. And that's that debt debtor relationship but here's the tricky thing about guilt we carry it everywhere we go you may have picked it up at work but you carry it home you may have picked it up out of town but you bring it back to your town whatever it is you carry this around and you carry it into the next season of your life and you pick up this weight and this guilt and you bring it right back into your own house. Your guilt, my guilt, our guilt, everybody's guilt. We all have guilt. Yay. It travels with us. And if we don't resolve it, if we don't connect some of the dots that we're going to connect here in just a few minutes, it evolves. Because our guilt never just stays guilt. It starts to eventually evolve. And when it evolves, most of the time, the first thing that it, it, it evolves into is anger. Because at the end of the day, you're angry with yourself. You're angry with yourself. I'm angry with myself because I did this. I didn't live up to my own expectations. I didn't live up to everybody else's expectations. And now I'm feeling guilty, and so now I'm angry. But the problem with anger is anger always leaks. Anger always leaks. It always leaks on someone. And so not only are you angry with yourself because you didn't live up to your expectations, but now nobody can live up to your expectations because you're just angry. And, and everybody begins to feel the weight of that, and it throws everybody off balance. 
But here's the thing. Guilty people rarely ever, ever make the connection between their guilt and their anger. Guilty people usually can never figure out what is driving this anger and this fury that's inside of me. Okay? Guilty people rarely put two and two together. And, and if you help them put two and two together, which is not wise, I'm not telling you to do that, but if you help them do that, they are going to so quickly point out everything that you do in your life that's wrong. You're telling me? I'm not an angry person. You're, you can't even run your house. Your kids don't even like you. Huh? I said it. I said it. Your kids don't even like you. They don't even like you. I know your husband didn't like you. He just tolerates you. Oh, I said it again. Right? All of a sudden, we just, all this stuff just starts to spill out. So don't try to help people put their anger and all that together and guilt because we're so quick to point it out in everyone else. Instead of sanding off the, we, we, what we do is we sand off the rough edges and we just kind of manipulate it and we begin to monitor it and we begin to shade it to fit kind of our lifestyle, and then eventually it just becomes a part of us, and we can't face it, and we can't embrace it. Because to face it, because to face it or to embrace it means that we have to admit it. And once we admit it, it leaves us standing condemned. Bam, bam, bam. That's when the theme music would come in. And we stand condemned because there's no recourse. There's no way to undo the past. There's no way to go back and be a freshman again. There's no way we can undo. There's no way we can unsay. We can't unleave. You can't be un unfaithful. You can't undrink too much. You can't unwork too much. You can't return a child's childhood to them. You can't return them to their first marriage. So again, we create a narrative and we just try to move on. But the problem is, is that it's your past. And your past is not just your past. The past was not designed to be left completely in the past. I knew I wouldn't get one. I knew I wouldn't get one there because we want, as Christians, to go, it's the past. The past is the past. But the past wasn't designed to just be the past. Why? Because it's part of your story. It's, it's part of who you are. And as much as I would like to ignore all my nasty past, and man, I got some nasty past. As much as I would like to forget about my past, it is part of who I am. It's part of my story. And, but if you don't resolve it, it travels with you. But here's the great news, and this is why I thought I'd spend the first 10 or 15 minutes today depressing you as much as I possibly could. Bringing back to mind all those things that you did not want to think about this morning. You do not have to be defined by your past. Neither do you have to spend a season of your life denying your past. Jesus gives you a third option. And someone who experienced this third option in a way we can't even begin to imagine was the one who put words to it the best in our, in our New Testament. His name is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote something that I'm going to read here in just a minute, but this is really important. When I read this, what he wrote, if you are a believer, 
this morning, and you grew up, you're a believer, whatever, I don't want you to hear what I'm about to read like I'm reading it from the Bible. Okay? And if you're here this morning and you, you really aren't a believer, maybe you've not had much to do with the Bible, then I really don't want you to hear what I'm about to read as if I'm reading it from the Bible. What I want you to hear this morning, and this is important, get this. I want you to hear the words of a man who had more regret and more guilt than everyone in this room put together. A man who carried more guilt than you can even imagine, more regret than we can even begin to imagine. This wasn't theory for the Apostle Paul when he wrote this. This wasn't, I've got an idea. This wasn't, oh, well, let me sit down and let me just give you a great Bible verse that's going to help you through this trial that you're going through. It wasn't that. Paul lived this. Paul faced this. He saw it firsthand. A lot of you remember that Paul, when he came onto the pages of history, he wasn't Paul. He was Saul. And so he's introduced to us as Saul of Tarsus, and he went around persecuting believers. In fact, he went and he got basically arrest warrants. He got permission to go from town to town and village to village and take these believers and arrest them and in some cases execute them. Later on in his life, he's now Paul. He's now an apostle, he's now building the kingdom of God, and now he faces parents of the kids that he arrested. He faces children of parents that he arrested and later had executed. Later in his life, he was engulfed and immersed in the very community of people whose fathers and sons and cousins and sisters and aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, grandchildren, of people that he had executed and imprisoned and arrested, all in the name of God. He heard screams that you can't even imagine being heard. He has regret that you can't imagine. But here's the amazing thing about Paul's story, is Paul never denies his guilt because he did it. He never sands off the rough edges He documented it. We know Paul's story because Paul told us his story. Okay? This isn't written by some. Paul gave us this document. He wrote this, and he doesn't deny it, but he doesn't let it define him. Instead of spending every minute of his day trying to distance himself from it or trying to deny it, the Apostle Paul, when he became a Jesus follower, he discovered the third option that Jesus gives us. So in this letter to Christians who are living in Rome, Nero's the emperor of Rome, and they're living there under the the thumb of Nero. He writes this to Christians. He says this, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. I'm telling you, if you've ever carried around any kind of guilt, That verse right there should just send chills up your spine. Because Paul is writing to you, and he's saying, Therefore, there is now no, zero 
condemnation. Something new has happened. It's a new day. It's a new era. It's a new covenant. God has done something new, and as a result of what God has done, therefore, because God did something so amazing, because God, through Jesus Christ, did something so amazing, I'm talking about the cross here. He did one amen. Come on. God did something so amazing. You, do you agree with that? God did something so awesome that Paul had to write and say this. Now, because of that, therefore, there, because if, to get the full context of this, you got to back up to Romans 7. And in Romans 7, Paul writes all this stuff. I used to love preaching this when I was youth pastor. But Paul basically says this, all the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. I don't want to do all the things I do, and all the things I do want to do, I don't do. And I never do anything good that I want to do. I keep doing the bad that I don't want to do, and I realize it's not me doing it, but it's the sin that's living in me. And he goes, I realize that I want to do good, but, but there's something inside of me working against me and it, in my flesh, and it's always making me want to do bad things. And I keep wanting to do these bad things. And he goes, but who will save me? Who will save this wretched person that I am? Because Paul, like you, is carrying a lot of guilt. And then he says this, thanks be. And I didn't put this in my notes. You're just going to have to trust me and go back and read it. Romans chapter 7. He says, thanks be the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Because he did something amazing through his son Jesus on the cross. And I don't have to carry this guilt and this shame. And then he goes on, verse number one, because we added chapters and verses years and years and years. And years later after this was written, just so that you could find it, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. It can be faced even though it can't be erased. It can be embraced, and I can live without condemnation. I don't have to pretend that it didn't happen. I don't have to live with a narrative that just gives me excuses so that I can make it through another day. I can actually face it and not deal with the consequences and condemnation or self-condemnation or condemnation from God. He says, because now there's space for it. Where is the space? Well, I'm glad you asked. That was a great question. He says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for who? For, for those, all of them, everybody, everybody. You know who that includes? You. Therefore, thank you, Ian. Therefore, or Kyle, whoever said it, thank you. There's, therefore, there's no condemnation. Man, I don't know. Maybe you are, were all perfect. I wasn't. I got a lot of junk in my trunk. Okay, there's a lot of skeletons in my closet, things I've done in my past. And when I read that verse and I see what Jesus did on the cross for me and I recognize that on this side of the cross, hello, come on, you live on this side, on this side of the cross. Therefore, now there's zero condemnation. I stand uncondemned. I regain balance. There becomes structure in my life. Through Jesus, through what, what God did through Jesus, now there's a different set of standards. There's different rules. There's different rules, and, and there's a different relationship with God. Because he goes on, how, how did he do that? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How? How did he do that? And he says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life. Everybody say life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
the law of sin and death. You know what the law of sin and death is? I mean, do you understand why we even had a law to begin with? The reason that there was a law to begin with is so that you recognized that you had a need for a Savior. Because there's not a person in this room, in fact, there's not a person on the planet outside of Jesus Christ himself that ever kept the law. The law was set up so that you knew that you had need of a Savior. You can grovel in it, you can, you can deny it, whatever, but sin just tells you you're stuck by the law. You're stuck like Chuck, man. Ain't nothing you can do about it. You're a heathen. You're a hypocrite, you're a sinner, and you're nasty, and you're just stuck. That's what the law tells you, and you're just stuck there. But he goes on and he says, for what the law was powerless to do, because the law's there for one reason, and the law's there so that it reminds you that you're an evil person. But what the law was powerless to do, see, your rules, your, your rules for your personal behavior, your rules for how you behave in relationships, your rules for how you behave in marriage, your rules for how you behave at work, how you behave with him or how you behave with her. Whether your rules are federal laws or state laws or municipal laws or marriage laws, whatever it might be, the only thing that laws can do is set a standard that's as low as we can go. That's what a law is. A law sets a standard that says, Here's the line. This is as low as you can go. Once you go beyond this line, you've broken the law. And when you break the law, you have to be condemned or you have to be punished. Right? That's what the law is there for. But the law can't restore you. The law can't set you free from your past. The law is just a constant reminder that you are absolutely guilty. So good luck with that. Good luck with ever living up to the law. And the sad thing is there's thousands and thousands of churches this morning that are still trying to live up to the law. That's not what he's asked us to do. He's never asked us to live up to the law. And so we create this narrative to try to live up to the law. And we start limping around and our whole life is out of balance. But Paul discovered when Jesus came, when Jesus came, there was a brand new kind of relationship that God created, that God created through Jesus Christ, that even the best law in the world couldn't do for us. It gave us things that no rule, no law could give us. Whatever it was that you violated that dinged in your conscience, he says this, for what the law was powerless to do, that it absolutely could not do, he says, God did. Man, that's powerful. That is so powerful. What the law couldn't do. Because he goes on later, he writes, he says, what priests have been trying to do for generation after generation after generation, Jesus did, God did through one sacrifice. One sacrifice. Listen, for what the law was powerless to do, God did. How did he do it? By sending his, what? His own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. His own perfect son who wasn't guilty of anything. This is why the fact that Jesus came down and lived among us as a God is so incredible and so important. 
God didn't send Jesus to live among us to show us how to love, though he did. And, and God didn't send Jesus to live among us to show us how to live, though he did. God didn't send Jesus to live among us to show us how to walk, but, but he did. But he sent him, Paul writes, in the form of sinful flesh to take upon himself what you deserve and what I deserve and, and what could set us free, what we deserve so that we wouldn't be trapped and we wouldn't have to face it. We wouldn't have to be defined by it. We wouldn't have to deny it and go on living a lie. He sent his son in the flesh in the form of a sinful nature to take upon himself that at the cross Jesus took exactly and precisely what you actually deserved. Jesus took upon himself. And you know what he took upon himself? And if you ask that question, a lot of people go, yeah, well, he took your sin and, and he took my sin. No, it's even, it's even better than that. He took divine condemnation for your sins. He took self-condemnation for your sins. He took all condemnation. And when Paul recognized this, he steps out and he begins to living this. And he's saying, listen, church, listen, Christians, those of you that are almost as guilty as I am. Listen, those of you who are not nearly as guilty as I am. Listen, those of you who, God forbid, you're even more guilty than I am. Paul's saying, listen to me. I want you to understand there is no condemnation. Once you understand that you are in Christ, there is zero condemnation. Zero condemnation. And together, God says, together, you and I, we're going to agree on one thing. The first thing that we're going to agree on is you are guilty. Right? You did it. You did it. You actually broke this person's heart. You actually broke heart. You actually lied to get that job. You actually lied. You actually cheated in this relationship. You actually did whatever it is you did. So by all means, you are guilty. God's saying you are guilty, but you are guilty not condemned. You did what you did. You're guilty of it. But you're not condemned of it. When I see you, I don't see what you did. I don't see the, all that stuff because I can't condemn you of that. It was taken on the cross and it was it set you free. So I don't see that stuff when I look at you. When I look at her, I don't see that stuff. He finishes this with, God condemned something, but God didn't condemn you. He says this, and so he condemned sin. See, God did condemn something, just not you. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? Why did he do that? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us did you know through what Jesus Christ did on the cross you have been perfected your righteousness has been perfected through the cross of Jesus Christ you know what that means that God has restored you to a guiltless relationship with him in spite of the fight that you're in spite of the in spite of the fact that you're actually guilty 
right? So you have a guiltless relationship, and I'm going to try to say it again, in spite of the fact that you're actually guilty. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible that he would do that for you, that he would do that for me because Jesus took the guilt upon himself? Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to wrap up here. There are four big implications I want to share with you real quick. Because this is true, and when you step into a relationship with God through what Jesus Christ did for you, when you step into a new covenant relationship, which Jesus came to inaugurate for the entire planet, he wants you to take, of these, take advantage of these four things, okay? And if you want to take a picture of it, if you want to write it down, these are important things for you to get in your spirit this morning. Number one. You actually, when you become a believer, when when you accept what Jesus did for you, you actually forfeit the right to condemn yourself because you're not yours to condemn. You forfeit the right to condemn yourself because you're not yours to condemn. Guilt is not your boss any longer. In fact, you are not even your boss any longer. You got a better boss, and the better boss says, hey, you are not condemned. You don't have to carry that guilt around. Well, I mean, as a matter of fact, I'm carrying that guilt around. Pastor Jared reminded me of everything this morning that I did wrong, and so I'm actually sitting in church right now with a lot of guilt. He's saying, look, you don't have to carry that around. You are not guilty. Guilt is not your boss. You have forfeited the right. When you, are, when you believe in Jesus, you forfeit the right to condemn yourself. So get over it. Because you're not your own to condemn. You were bought with a price. There was a price that was paid for you. And you're not allowed to condemn yourself. Number two, your guilt will remind you, but it will not define you. You did it. Okay, you did it. You screwed up. You said it. Whatever it is, your guilt can remind you, but it doesn't have to define you. Choose to let it define you. Just keep staying in here. You keep sulking in it. You keep living in that guilt every day. You just keep putting on that guilt every morning, and you just walk around all pouty. What? It, let it define you. That's fine. But when you believe, if you truly believe in Jesus, and that Jesus is who Jesus said He was, when you believe that. Guilt can, it can remind you, but it doesn't ever, ever, ever define you. You can stand up week after week after week after week, and you can say, look, it doesn't define me. It reminds me of a story because, see, here's the thing. When, when you've been forgiven of something, man, it just changes the way you see life. And Jesus, he's he gets embarrassed. He's at this home, and he's with his host, and all of a sudden this woman, she embarrasses all the host and everybody at this party, and they're all just looking down on her, and Jesus says, whoa, 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 To the one that's been forgiven much, they can love much. You see, when you got a lot of baggage, what it does is it opens up your capacity to love it opens up the fact that you can forgive. When you've got a lot of junk that you've been forgiven of, and man, I'm, I'm one of those people, it, what it does is it frees me to love people. It frees me to love people because I was an embarrassment to the kingdom. I was an embarrassment to my family. I was an embarrassment to people around me. 
But when I accept and understand what Jesus did for me, what it does is it can remind me of my past, but it doesn't have to define my past any longer. Sometimes you come to church, and you'll, we'll be standing here, and we'll be worshiping, and you'll see somebody across the aisle, and they got their hands up, or they're just crying, and you look at them, and you, for a moment you might think, I wonder why they're crying, but I'll tell you why they're crying, because they probably have a story. They probably have a story, and when they sing that song about God's grace, or when they sing that lyric, that one line about there's no shadow that you, you didn't light up, there's no mountain you won't climb up. Something inside of them, they were reminded of this nasty guilt that they carried. But then they were reminded that Jesus forgave them. And in those moments, sometimes in worship service, you see people broken. And most of the time, it's because they have a story. They're reminded of God's grace and that song and that lyric has taken them back to God's grace, and, and they begin to express extraordinary gratitude for God. Let me tell you, the most awesome people to have in your church are people who've been through a lot of junk. Because, man, they love hard. They love, and, man, they're so grateful. Number three, you forfeit the right to condemn others because that would make you a hypocrite. Mm, the upper room. See, we like to condemn others. We like to judge and we like to look at everybody else. But the more judgmental you are, the less aware you are of your own sin. Here's one of my rules. People who are the worst judges usually have the most to hide. Okay? People who just want to judge the most, who are so judgmental and so condemning and condescending, they usually have, they've created the biggest narrative to hide. And they're trying to draw all the attention to you, not me. Listen, when you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, you forfeit the right to condemn others because that would make you a hypocrite. You are freely, freely, freely given life. We have to give that back, and we can't judge. You are perfectly positioned, perfectly positioned to love the unlovable. This morning, you are perfectly positioned to forgive the unforgivable. Number four, this is the last thing right here. I'm going to close. You're free to make restitution without expectation and without excuses. That's a good one. Let me tell you what's not Christianity. Christianity is not um, Rick, Rick Ross, my buddy here. I call him Rick Ross. I don't know why I call him Rick Ross. This week I started calling him Ricky Bobby. But Rick, I, I hurt you. I messed up, and I, I, I did you wrong, but I went home, and I prayed about it. I asked God to forgive me, and now everything's good. That's not Christianity, okay? We want to mask that like it's Christianity. Christianity is, you know what? I did you wrong. I hurt you. 
I felt guilty about it. God's already forgiven me. But now God gave me what I didn't deserve, and I want to give you what you do deserve. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry for hurting you. That's Christianity. See, we, we want to say, yeah, well, I hurt him, but I prayed about it. Everything's good now. That's not really Jesus. Right? See, your new covenant marching orders are this. To love the way you have been loved. Not by your wife or your mom or your dad or whatever. This is Jesus talking, and he says, you love and you show love the way I have shown you love. He, he goes on, he says, by this, everybody will know your mind. See, I could preach a whole another message on this, but you don't know that when, when you go to someone, they may have, you may have moved on, got a new job, been remarried or whatever, and, and you've hurt somebody in the past, and and they're just holding on to this. When you go back and you make restitution, when you forgive and, and repent, when you say, I'm sorry, you might just unlock a vault of bitterness inside of them that they have held on to for years. And you have no clue what's going on. I'm going to ask you right there where you are. Will you just close your eyes? Bow your head if you'd like for just a moment. I want you to just think about something. Your willingness to step into this new covenant relationship with God where you bring all the junk and you say, yes, I did it. I'm guilty. There's no excuses, but I'm accepting the fact that you've not only forgiven me, but I'm not condemned. I can't condemn myself. In fact, every time I remember my past, it's just going to remind me how much you loved me. It's going to remind me of your gratitude towards me. I'm not going to condemn myself anymore. I'm not going to condemn others. I'm free to go back and make restitution and approach the people that I've hurt I'm not going to make excuses anymore. I'm not going to say, yeah, 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 but you had a part to play in that. I was young, or it was way back then, or whatever. I'm sorry. And as you modeled humility, Jesus, I want to model that same humility. And maybe the things that allows others to deal with stuff in their heart Maybe it has to do with me. So with your head bowed, I'm going to ask you a question. And maybe this is kind of a hard question. Maybe I, I, you know, I hate to even ask it. But I'm going to ask you this question because maybe it's why you're here today. But is there somebody waiting for you to make the first move? Is there somebody for waiting, you, waiting for you to make the first move? Somebody from your past, somebody that's carrying the shrapnel around. They've been waiting and hoping and hoping that you would just come back around. You're successful and you've moved on. Maybe you moved to another state. Maybe you have a new family, but they're just waiting, waiting. They think that maybe you've come to a point where you don't even have a conscience. And it hasn't bothered you a bit. And they're turning on the inside. 
But is there someone this morning that, that pops into your mind that you can think of that they're waiting on you to make the first move? And why haven't you? Is it pride? Is pride your boss? Is pride what stands in between you and this other person? Jesus humbled himself for you, and now it's our job to freely humble ourselves for others. So stop telling yourself the same old story and coming up with the same old excuses. But are you ready to finally be honest with yourself and be honest with God and be honest with others? I understand this. Listen, we fear the consequences of confession more than the consequences of concealment. That's a fact. Father, I pray right now, Jesus, God, that you just begin to, whatever, whoever this is maybe in our mind that you've brought to our attention that maybe needs us to make a first move, God, Lord, I pray that you stir our hearts to do that. God, we've been preaching and we've been talking about whatever's in our heart eventually begins to come out. We're trying to monitor our hearts better. One of the ways that we can do that this morning is monitoring what's coming out. And I pray that this morning what comes out, Lord, is an opportunity for us to restore some relationships that we've damaged, that we've done, that we've broken. People that maybe we've hurt. And I pray that strength in us, Father, in your name, I pray. Amen. Now I want everybody to remember this. My past will remind me. It will not define me. Come on, say that with me. My past will remind me. It will not define me. Come on, one more time. My past will remind me, but it will not define me. Man, isn't that powerful? Listen, guilt, you're not my boss. Shame, you're not my boss. Embarrassment, you're not my boss. It's what comes out of the mouth that defile a person. So what if we really got good at guarding our heart? Because it's what's in that comes out. But here's some good news, and I'm going to leave you with this, and then I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Kevin. Here's the good news. If you're having a hard time this morning forgiving yourself, the good news is this. Yourself has already been forgiven. Okay, come on. If you're having a hard time forgiving yourself, yourself has already been forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because what the law could not do, God already did. And now this morning, he invites you to step into that with him. Amen. Come on, if you believe that, give God a big hand clap this morning.